Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's National Mission. We're here to come alongside you as we journey through life under the cross. What does it look like to care for our neighbors in body and soul? How do we tend to our own body and soul? How can we speak up for life? And finally, how do we share the faith with the next generation? Join us as we have these conversations and learn together. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Stephanie Jabauer, here with my guest, Dr. Joel Bierman. We're going to be laying some important groundwork in this episode, building a biblical foundation for God's design for male and female, and how we were fashioned by God to relate to each other as engendered creatures. Dr. Bierman, welcome back. For those who are new to listening to us, would you please introduce yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Joel Bierman. I teach systematic theology at Concordia Seminary. I've been teaching here now for 20-some years. I was a parish pastor for about 11 years before that and enjoyed teaching doctrine. I've got three children and 10 grandkids now, and they all live in the St. Louis area, so that's a pretty pretty nice thing. Wonderful. Hey, let's jump right in because uh, we've got a really big topic in a short amount of time. All right. When we're taking up as Friends for Life this topic of sexuality, why would it be a good idea to start with talking about order of creation, Genesis 2 stuff. Yeah, if we're going to kind of come to terms with these, any questions about sexuality, it's always a good idea to start with the creator who has fairly strong ideas about his plans for creation. God doesn't create us in a way that is sort of like a deistic, get the job done and then it hands off. No, he's created us with a, a definite purpose in mind, very much concerned about how we live our lives and how we do things. And he has a expressed his will very clearly about his plan for creation as male and female. He made Adam uniquely as Adam, made Eve uniquely as Eve, drawn from the side of Adam. And the meticulous detail in Genesis 2, laying out the creation of the two different sexes, I think it's really indicative of the fact that God's got a plan and it involves differences between the male and female. We need to pay attention to that if we're going to get anything else right. Then where do we go from here? God created Adam and Eve, male and female, and that's before the fall. Now sin has really done its duty. It's really messed up a lot of things. How does that guide our thinking on living now in a broken world? Right. What we need to remember about creation is God's creation is a good and wonderful and perfect creation, and he established it. He stood back on day six and said, very good. That included the male-female relationship, included sexuality, included his plan for procreation. It included all of it. And so to be a man is God's good plan. To be a woman is God's good plan. For them to be together as male and female in a marriage relationship with the whole idea of caring for one another and creating God's purposes and bringing about children, this is all God's plan. And if we're going to thrive in our lives as humans, we need to be in tune with God's plan and be willing to yield to that and accept it. And so that's God's good plan. Sin comes and just kind of messes it all up and brings it all, puts it all out of whack. You think about when God hands down the curses in Genesis 3, they're very much specific to each person involved or each creature involved. The snake gets his curse, then Eve gets hers, and then Adam gets his. They're not all the same. And Eve's curse zeroes in on the uniqueness of what makes Eve Eve, having children and being underneath Adam's authority. And then Adam's curse is Arizona Linux, Adam, Adam, having dominion over the creation and caring for it and caring for everything around him. Those tasks are still there. 
There is still joy in those tasks. There's still joy in being a creature. And yet sin has messed it all up and shot through it all. So it's not like work is a curse, having kids is a curse, the pain is a curse, the thorns and thistles is a curse. So there's pain that comes in and messes up God's good plan. Same with sexuality. Sexuality is God's good plan. To be a man, to be a woman, God's good plan. Is it always easy? No. Does sin mess up God's good plan and make everything out of whack? It happens all the time. And so that shouldn't shock us. And the fact that you know people have sexual dysfunctional issues doesn't mean God did it wrong or God made me this way and this is how I have to be. And see, that's part of the big issue, I think, with um, a lot of gender dysphoria issues or gender confusion issues or people not being content with their sexuality and wanting to push against God's plan is it really comes down to, I feel a certain way. And then they're convinced that their feelings, their thoughts, their take on the world is the final word. When in fact, a Christian recognizes how I feel isn't the final word. What God says is the final word. That changes everything. That's not just for issues of sexuality. I mean, that's for everything. We look at all of the Ten Commandments, and that's the plan that God has laid out. God's natural law is built within us, and then he's like, here, these are my commandments. If you live by these, it will be more likely to go well for you. (laughs) You know, exactly right. And there is this beautiful, good plan God has laid out for us. When you're living in conformity with it, things tend to go well. Right. Now, sin reaches into everything and messes up everything. And yet... We can't claim that because there's a brokenness, therefore God's plan is not right, or therefore I am this way. No, God's plan is still God's plan. We need to come to terms with the brokenness of the world around us and what that means for our own lives in it. So at the very start, God's plan was for there to be male and female, two genders or two sexes, correct? Correct. So then let's start at the beginning from um, creation and then go through the entire redemption story. Dr. Bierman, what is God's design for male and female? Yeah, his design for male and female is crystal clear in the, in the Genesis account, the creation account. And the creation accounts are really important for our understanding of what it means to be human. Our anthropology is grounded in God's plan. And the best way to use the creation accounts is not as proof text for um, biblical inerrancy or whatever else you want to try to do that people often get confused about. The best use of the creation accounts is our understanding of what it means to be human and what our purpose in life is, because it's all right there. So God creates Adam, take care of his creation. It's clear. That's what he's for. He is there to take care of creation. And then it's found that he's alone, and that's not so much fun. So God decides to make a, a right helper for him, a suitable helper. Creates all the animals for Adam. Nothing quite fits. So then he creates for Adam Eve. The Eve is the perfect fit. And that's why Adam, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. Yes. And so she is tailor-made for Adam and she's made to come alongside Adam so that the two of them together can better accomplish God's purpose for his human creatures, which is taking care of all the creation. And so right there, all kinds of things are dropped into place. What's my purpose of my life? What's it mean to be human? Why am I here? How do I relate to the opposite sex? It's all right there. And so the maleness of a guy and the femaleness of a woman is God's plan. They're meant to work together in a relationship. That's what marriage is supposed to be all about. Now, singleness and all the other things that come in and life after marriage, you know, death or whatever, um, all those things complicate the picture and we you know, have to sort through all that stuff, but none of it negates God's plan for male and female and God's reality that 
A woman is made for the man, and man is made to care for the woman, and this is the plan that God has. This is the relationship, and it's been established from the very beginning. And then sin makes it difficult and hard, but the whole point of the redemption that, as you mentioned, is when Christ comes, fulfilling God's plan for his creation after the fall, what he does is he puts things back where they belong. It's a restoration. Um, we too often get wrong our thinking of salvation wrong. We think about salvation as almost like a rescue out of this broken world. You know, we're, we're in this horrible situation and the world's falling apart around us and God's going to rescue us and take us to a different world. But the truth is what Christ does is he comes into this world to redeem and restore this world. God wants his creation back. He's not going to lose it. And he gets it back through Christ. So when God gets his creation back, that means he's restoring it to what it should be. Things are back to the plan. And so male and female is part of the plan, and that doesn't go away. That's actually fulfilled in Christ. And we see this exactly happening in the New Testament because in Ephesians 5, when Paul is describing post-resurrection, new life of the Christian, the life of the man and the woman together, he's describing the same kind of situation that was there before the fall. Adam has a responsibility to care for his wife and to love her as Christ loved the church. Woman has a responsibility to be submissive to the husband, follow his lead. They're male and female. They're different. And the maleness is established by God. And the femaleness is established by God. And together, it's a beautiful thing. And so when Adam looks at Eve and says, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he sees something in her that is like him, but also she's obviously different. So I'm sure that whole statement can be unpacked for a very long time. But how can we look at that whole situation of Adam meeting Eve and, you know, seeing himself reflected in her as the other, but she's also very, very different from him. How does he learn about himself by looking at her as same and different? Yeah, a lot of um, good theologians have put some serious thought into this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this a little bit, that I really only know myself when there's another opposed to me that comes to me, not opposed in fighting, but as an over against. And so Adam sees Eve and he sees himself because she's from his own side and she's a human like he is and she's altogether different. And he finally really understands himself in light of her. And it's the difference that highlights the uniqueness of what he is and who he is. And that's what makes it part of the beautiful thing. John Paul II did a lot of reflection on this stuff too. Um, in his work, the, the Body Theology, which is controversial in Catholic circles because it's so conservative. But he's advocating the same kinds of things, that a man is a man and knows himself really only when the woman is there, and the same vice versa. The woman sees herself in the man, and it's the differentness that highlights who I am. And so I learn about what it means to be who I am in the, in the face of, in, the, in relationship with my, with my wife, with the woman who is the other than me. So that's that differentness that highlights the uniqueness of who I am. All this foundation then starts to help you realize how out of whack things like um, homosexuality are because it's the very sameness that is being you know, perpetuated. There's no differentness there. And yeah, that's easier because it's the same as me, but it's the differentness that highlights you who you are and helps you to actually see the fullness of what you are and all that's lost when we run over these things and act like, um, it doesn't really matter. Is there a way that Adam and Eve together reflect better the image of God than just Adam alone could have done or, or Eve? 
Yeah, exactly right. Um, the first creation account, Genesis 1, says that in the image of God, he made them male and female, he made them. So male and female is clearly God's plan for his full image. And see, it's wrong for a man to say, well, men, males have the image of God and the woman has a reflection of man, of one man only. Paul mentions about woman being the glory of man and God, man being the reflection of God. And yet Genesis 1 makes clear that both male and female together share God's image and that it is that maleness and femaleness come together into that one flesh union that is the full human. And you even get the sense in Genesis 2 that Adam is lacking until the woman comes along. There's something missing. There's a not good. There's a He needs his etzer, his helper. And then when she comes, now he's what he's supposed to be. Now it's all together. Now, listeners, I took a, a whole semester class from Dr. Bierman uh, called Man and Woman in Christ, where we fleshed a lot of this out. So I, I don't pretend to be like this short episode here. We're going to get it all pieced together. Um, this is a long study and a study that can be for the long haul, starting in Genesis and going all the way through Revelation and our our hope in the resurrection. But Dr. Bierman, as best you can, if you could sum up that semester for us, tell us what is Adam's role, or what is the man's role, and what is Eve's role, or the woman's role? Sure. The the man, uh, the term that comes through is found uh, actually in Ephesians 5, where it says that the man is the kephale in Greek, the head of the woman. And there's been a lot of being spilled about what that means, but I think it's pretty straightforward what it means. He's responsible for her, and so he has this sense of leadership and caring for her, which doesn't mean he's the dictator and lords it over her. It means he has a he is responsible for her life and responsible for caring for her and has final accountability for her. So he's her head. And then the woman, the term that comes through best is from Genesis 2, where God says, I will make a suitable helper in the Hebrew it's etzer. So I think the terms head and helper capture things very nicely. The man is built to be the head of the woman, and the woman is built to be the helper of the man, and together that makes a perfect relationship a one flesh union, as Genesis 2 describes it, and that verse gets quoted again by Jesus and by Paul, that we will, the two become one flesh, and man will leave his father and mother, be united with his wife, they'll become one flesh. That one flesh union is, yeah, it's part of the sexual union, but more than that, it's the union of the man and the woman together in this new life that has always been God's plan. And so it's the male and female and their uniqueness. So the male does his thing, and the woman does her thing, and as you pointed out, yeah, in the class I teach, we spend a fair amount of time looking at supporting information. And it is quite fascinating how even biology and sociology studies continue to corroborate all these things. Men are made for competition. Men are made for, you know, the kind of risk taking. We, we thrive on this. Women are not made for that. Women tend to be made much more for nurturing issues and for holding things together and for cultivating relationships. We're just different. And the differentness is the whole point. It's the plan. Now, there are differences, of course, within men and women, and yet the differences between men and women are so great that they really circumvent all of those. And it's interesting that even secular researchers, it doesn't have to be Christian researchers with an ax to grind while trying to find these things. Secular researchers, just looking at male and female stuff, will come to these same exact conclusions, which fly in the face of all the kind of standard ideology we get from our world around us, political and sociological. And it's frankly risky for people to come out and say those kinds of things. So you don't hear them reported a lot, but people who are willing to stand on the research and follow what's there, say this stuff, which corroborates rather nicely with 
God built us to be a certain way, and we thrive when we do that. What about people who don't fit the typical gender stereotypes of, well, maybe you have a woman who is uh, competitive and who is rough and tumble and uh, who has the... (laughs) "Quote unquote mind of her own." I mean, what are uh, are people supposed to feel like they're strangers in their body if they don't feel like they fit those gender yeah. stereotypes? And we need to be careful. What yeah, you know, the gender stereotype is, is right. It's not like you have to be a dude who loves football and loves you know doing all these crazy things, and a woman who is you know immediately sewing something and just you know staying quiet. No, there's we don't. I'm not trying to perpetuate gender stereotypes at all. But I'm saying there are certain ways that we are wired, the ways our brains work, the way we operate that tend to be very consistent across males and across females and that we're unique as part of the cool thing. So there are men who have different interests. Some men love to play the piccolo. Some are wired for being a linebacker. Others are, you know, very domestically interested. And that all works. It all fits. It doesn't mean I'm not a male because, you know, I like taking care of babies. No, it means you're a male who has a gift to hear or, or an interest there, but you're still a male and you're still going to operate like a male. And so that's part of the problem is people sometimes get too hung up on men are supposed to be this and they fill in all these blanks. And then when a guy doesn't quite fit that, he his only assumption is, I guess I must really be a woman. No, you're still a dude. You just have these interests and you can cultivate those and use those in ways that honor God as a man. We don't need to jump to the conclusion that, oh, somebody made a mistake when they called me a man. I'm really not. No, you're still a guy. You just have these other interests. And then, you know, that's, that's typical. A lot of kids keep trying to sort out what they like, you know, what they enjoy. And it's a smart parent who tells the kid, you know, God has gifted you in all these ways. And you can't, it's not true, the Disney line. You can do anything you want. No, you can't be anything you want. There are lots of things you can't be. You can be what God has gifted you to do. And you can be what God has created you to be. Let's do that. And let's enjoy that. And if you happen to be a guy who enjoys things that maybe other guys don't, that's okay. We'll find a place for this. It doesn't make you a wimp. It doesn't make you a sissy boy or whatever the term is now. It doesn't make you into a woman for crying out loud that you have to change your gender to match up with those feelings. No, you just need to figure out how that all fits together. Now, is it even possible that you have a kid who gets really confused by the culture or he may be even confused by his own thoughts and is convinced, I'm really a guy, I'm really a boy caught in a girl's body? Instead of saying, yes, let's, let's embrace that. Let's, let's figure this out. Instead, we need to say, no, God doesn't make mistakes. And your body is part of who you are. And your maleness and your femaleness is wired into your very body. We don't ignore that. We're not going to blow past that. We're going to come to terms with that. And if you feel a little bit out of whack, we're going to figure that out. And we're going to come to terms with that. And in the, if a person struggles with that with, for their life, that might be the reality they struggle with. And I'm not going to deny that that some people genuinely struggle with that. And it's not just because somebody's lying to them, we got to talk them out of it. No, they might genuinely have a struggle. And I don't think it's any different to have a mental challenge that you deal with through your life or a feeling challenge you deal with through your life that's any different than having uh, some particular physical normality you're born with. So a person who's born with some kind of physical challenge, you know, an, an undeveloped arm or something, we say, oh, that's cool. You want to lean into that. Let's take, make your other arm that way. No, we say that's too bad, but we'll deal with it. And they just deal with it for their whole life. And it's no different than a person who has gender dysphoria or maybe same-sex attraction. Maybe that's a real thing. And I'm not going to deny that, but it doesn't mean you embrace it. And that becomes now what you have to be. We have to always listen to what God says about who we are. 
and about what he says about how we should live with our realities of our maleness and our femaleness and all the things he gives to us. What you said was just kind of like the the byline of our episode is that we have to listen to who God says we are. Right. The culture around us right now is almost equating one sexuality with their identity. But we have to listen to what God says about what makes up our identity. So what does God say about what makes you you? What makes you a human created in God's image? And what what yeah. role does sexuality play in my identity? Yeah, it plays a huge role. And this, I want to spend a minute on this because I hear even like conservative Lutheran people will talk about my identity is my baptism identity. God tells me who I am. I'm God's forgiven child. That's my identity. And that sounds great and awesome and cool and, you know, spiritually rich and gospel-centered. And it is all that. And I'm not going to deny it. God tells me I am his child. That's good news because I deserve to be nothing more than a child of Satan. That's how I live. But God says otherwise. I'm grateful for that. And that's awesome. But the reality is my identity doesn't stop there. Part of my identity, part of who I am is my life. And we need to be honest about that. And we shouldn't deny that. And I think sometimes careful, conservative, confessional Lutherans, you know, are so zeroed on baptism, gospel, 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 that we forget the reality that the way, the, the life I live is also part of who I am. I'm born to a particular set of parents at a particular time in history, in a particular place geographically. All of that is immediately part of who I am. I'm not a German living in the 16th century. I'm not a woman living in 200 years in the future. I'm here now. This is who I am. And then when I become married and have children, that becomes part of my identity. When I start doing particular work as a professor or as a bricklayer or whatever work I'm doing, that becomes part of who I am. And it is part of who I am. And so my maleness is just as much part of my identity as all the other genetic factors and all the other sociological, historical, geographical factors. All of that plays into my identity. And we shouldn't downplay that. So there are vertical realm factors that make me who I am and horizontal realm factors that make me who I am. All of it adds up to be who I am. So I'm persuaded that at the resurrection, when I the unique I that I am is resurrected. Each one of our unique identities that is raised on the last day, well, if me, Joel Barron, is being raised on the last day, I'm all the stuff I am for my 60-some years of life so far. So is all that relevant on our resurrection? Of course. It's part of who I am. So will I be a male at the resurrection? Yeah, of course. And will I be the father of three kids and grandfather of 10? Yes, that's who I am. Now, what all that will mean at the Esperton? I have no idea. And what God will do with that and how he'll explode it and blow it up even more into great things and you know how my identity will be fulfilled and complete, I don't know. But I'm, I'm sure I'll be me. And me is my history. And that history has got things I'm thrilled about, things I'm not thrilled about. But God's going to take all of it and make a beautiful thing out of it that I'll be at the resurrection. I'm confident of that. So the person who struggles with their sexuality, that's part of who they are. And at the resurrection, it will be redeemed and perfected, and that reality will be a beautiful part of their story of who they are. I'm convinced of that. And so the person who struggles against sin throughout their whole life in whatever area it is becomes part of who they are, and it's part of their identity and part of what makes them what they are, and that will be a beautiful thing of the resurrection. Oh, you've been 
a pastor for a very long time, and then on top of that, a professor for a fair amount of that. What's the biggest pushback you've gotten from people when you teach order of creation and uh, how God created male and female in their relation to each other? Yeah, the the pushback you get is always the problem of, oh man, you know, the world says this. That's one question, you know, because we 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 are all, and I I know I used to tell this in class all the time. I say I always say it in class that we're all feminists because we're living in the 21st century. We were raised in this culture. You know, I've been around for 60 some years, and so I, I I'm thoroughly embedded in this culture. So I've been taught to think like a feminist. We all have. We've all been taught to think like individualists because we're all part of the Enlightenment West. So we've all been taught to value our own feelings and our own thoughts and what makes sense. And you know, the idea that a woman should has to have to be submissive to her husband, that doesn't make sense. You know, that, how, how, how can that be right? And so we start pushing back against things mostly because it doesn't seem to add up to us. It doesn't seem to make sense to us. Or we find it challenging and difficult. We don't really like that. And then the other pushback I get is, you know, this just doesn't sell very well in the culture. And if we really want to be, you know, relevant to the culture and really make some strides with evangelism and kind of mission, we probably need to change our tune here a little bit and tone this down a little bit and find a way to, to back off a little bit. I get that quite a bit. We just need to back off a little bit. We need to be, you know, kind of just soften this a little bit because it's, this is going to be offensive. This is going to cause trouble. And... I don't know what to say to that besides, you know, God's truth is God's truth. And that's kind of how I would look at it. But that's the kind of pushback I would get. Hmm. So as we, as Friends for Life, embark on this journey of learning about God's design for human sexuality and then how culture and our own sinful selves have mucked this up, what are some key things that we need to keep in mind as we move forward? Yeah, as we move forward, we need to have confidence that God knows what he's doing. We, what Christians cannot do, and people who are committed to trying to do things God's way, what they cannot do is live in fear and live in timidity because, oh my goodness, the culture doesn't understand us and the culture is getting worse and worse and it's getting more corrupt all the time. Yes, it is. Okay, so what? Um, God God will take care of it. And we we do care. The so what? Yeah, it's a gr- we grieve it. We, we work to try to rectify it. We pray for it. But the culture is going to do what the culture is going to do. And God is still God, and he's still in control, and he won't let the culture go beyond where he wants it to go. And we, we know that. We trust God. God really is in control. And if we believe in a resurrected God who has promised to come again, kind of changes everything. Because what are we afraid of? What are we worrying about? So we speak God's truth, and more importantly, we live God's truth in our own lives. The way I think about myself and my responsibilities the way I function in my marriage, the way I function in my families, the way I function with people at church, how I live my life needs to reflect my confidence in God's truth so that I live that reality out in my own life. So I live with confidence. We're not fearful, and but we're also not you know, at war with the world to try to fix it or trying to save our space or trying to protect our way of life. Our way of life is how we're gonna live. And if the world resists, then we just find ourselves more and more alienated from the world. But we keep on living the way God calls us to live. And we should have confidence in doing that. And we should have um, perseverance in doing that, not let the um, world try to dissuade us from being who God calls us to be. 
as we wrap up, I'm thinking of uh, the passage from 1 Corinthians 6, where it talks about our bodies as being temples of the Holy Spirit who is within us, who we have from God, uh, the fact that we are not our own. We were bought with a price, so therefore glorify God in your body. And when I read that passage, I think, well, bam, that that is why Christians take this matter of sexuality so seriously. Right. So can you kind of expound on that? A little bit and like why well, yeah. do we care <laughs> now you put your finger exactly in the right place and that that text from paul is so potent you're not your own glorify god with your body and then the very premise we're not our own it flies in the face at complete right angles with everything in the culture because the whole driving premise of our enlightenment culture is that each individual is his own his own god his own lord his we're, we have autonomy we have the right to make our decisions about our own life, our own body. We get to choose. Nobody can force it on us. So if I choose to live a certain way, the world must say, okay, so long as you're not hurting anybody else, fine. And that goes completely against what we confess as Christians. As Christians, we confess that we are not our own. I'm not in charge of my body. I don't own it. God does. I don't get to decide how I do. God does. The word that Paul uses is slave. And I know that's a loaded word, people don't like it, but we are his slaves. And that's the reality. So Christ is the master. I do things his way and I have confidence. So that means I need to handle my body the way God wants me to handle it. Not the way I feel like it, not the what makes me happy, not what I choose. And that goes with everything for a man and a woman. We need to do our, our life God's way. He calls the shots. So if you're not your own and you've been bought at a price, well, it changes everything. You, you see yourself as God's servant and God's workmanship, honoring him with your life. And that's what it's all about. So you've kind of given us just a, a taste for more that we can learn about God's good design and a, a little bit of a teaser, too, because we can't spend much more time on this. So where would you direct listeners to go if they if they want more of this good stuff? Well, there are a lot of good resources on this. And in fact, Years ago, I was thinking about maybe I should write a book about this, but then I found other ones that were just as good, so I didn't bother. They're not always by Lutherans, but there are some good ones. Um, Andreas Kastenberger and his wife have written together a book on man and woman, which is really helpful. And um, it's, it's a great resource because they just kind of lay things out and, and getting all the particulars there. The, the title of this book is God's Design for Man and Woman, a Biblical Theological Survey. And it's by Andreas and Margaret Kastenberger. It's just very thorough, very consistent, and very, yeah, it's evangelical, but you know, there's not much I would argue with in it, frankly. And he does a nice job in there. And there's also a really helpful appendix where they kind of trace the history of feminism and the culture. It helps to make a lot of sense of things. It's a great resource. So I recommend that. And then there's also, yeah, some old videos of me teaching different things. There's one from a lay Bible Institute I did now a long time ago, which lays a lot of this stuff out very helpfully and i reference some other materials there and and i've i mentioned there's you know secular people who thought about stuff one of the guys i found useful is a man named leonard Sachs, s-a-x and he wrote a book called um why gender matters which is really good frankly he's the first edition is better than the second edition i think second edition he gets a little bit off into his liberal agenda a little bit more than i think he should 
But um, his first edition is really good. And yeah, he's not a Christian. He's got some liberal ideas running through a lot of his ideas, socially, politically. But his take on male, female is right on the money. And it's really helpful to see how these things work out. Dr. Bierman, thanks so much again for giving us your time today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to do it, Stephanie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. Do you have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that discusses the life God has given and the people he has called you to serve right where you are in God's mission. Music